Yeah. We'll proceed. I think I have too much, so I'll have to cut short anyway. <laughs> but uh, thank you very much, and uh, it's really um, I'm enjoying this visit to Ohio State very much. Um, I've never been here, in fact, to Columbus or Ohio State, so it's it's all new. Maybe uh, <laughs> I should have. And, um, and Mershon Center, uh, I'm very impressed with. I just spent some time on your website. It's clearly a very interesting collection of, of individuals and activities. So, and I hope I have something to contribute to your discussion. Uh, I'm, uh, as you can tell from my background, I'm, I'm sort of a garden variety demographer, I guess you'd say. And um, while I'm saying that kind of a pejorative sense, I don't think of it pejoratively. But I'm, I think we do quite good work. But uh, I think Craig, uh, when we first talked about this session, he said, what about HIV-AIDS in Africa? And talking about kind of security and political dimensions of that. And I said, that's really a stretch from anything I've thought about. Um, so I suggested we think about demography of the Middle East, uh, which is something I uh, have been working on on and off over the last six, seven, eight years, where I've reflected at least a little bit on social political implications. But even here, you'll see that um, this is somewhat um, foreign territory to me, and I, I think we really should have a discussion here today as much as a presentation. So, But, um, well, I have some material I hope you'll find interesting. <clears throat> what I want to achieve uh, is just the following, what I'm calling elements of a political demography of the Arab region. And I choose the language here carefully, elements. I, I don't want to uh, oversell what I'm trying to achieve. Um, First of all, political demography uh, is a term you sometimes hear. You don't hear it very often. <laughs> you hear social demography, you hear economic demography. Um, political demography, I think, is an undeveloped um, subfield or sub-subfield. Um, I have a colleague in New York, Jeffrey McNichol, who's written quite a bit about politics and demography um, interconnections. Um, well, there's some other folks around you can think of, but um, not very many. So I think it, 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 it's an undeveloped area anyway, and um, application to a particular region would even be less well-developed. Although, interestingly, in the case of this region, uh, demography enters political dialogue all the time, um, especially in the case of Palestine-Israel, uh, but otherwise to the region, too. So I just want to throw some things on the table that I say are, are I think, could be elements of a political demography. Um, I'm going to talk about Primarily, uh, demographic structures as constraints. Now, here I think it's part of the problem of having a full-fledged political demography. Um, the, the, the first uh, impulse is to treat um, demographic structures as constraints, as pressures that um, politics somehow has to respond to or does respond to. Um, I don't think that's an invalid point of view, but it's, a, it's an incomplete view. Um, demographic structures and demographic change also provides opportunities. Um, that, it, um, that um, I guess constraints can also be considered opportunities. But, but more than that, one wants a, a model that allows for uh, feedbacks. Uh, that is, um, demographic structures are themselves products of political process um, in many different ways. Um, the governance, national state actions have all sorts of bearings on, on health, on, on fertility um, that are well documented and well known. And one can even hypothesize that sometimes individual uh, demographic choices are guided by political aims, political objectives. That's a way in which politics is, or political considerations is also driving demographic choices. So um, I think a full-fledged political demography would have a lot of elements you're not going to see here today. So that's by way of a, a bit of an apology, I guess. Uh, just so we all know what we're talking about, um, 
the lighter green is the Arab region, at least. So these are actually the members of the Arab League. Um, one is not shown, that's the Comoros Islands out in the uh, Indian Ocean. <laughs> they don't carry much demographic weight, but they are part of the Arab League as well. Um, and when I show you summary data for the Arab region, it will be these countries, except that I um, actually, some of my calculations have excluded Sudan. The problem is that uh, Sudan is, uh, as you know, is Arab North and uh, African South. Um, it's been a while since we've had good data for the whole country, but it's probably more than half of the population is in the African South, on the order of 60%. So um, it's only 40% Arab, so it's a little bit misleading to throw it in because it actually is quite weighty in population terms. It's 30 to 40 million individuals. Uh, Egypt is the, um, the main player here demographically. Uh, at the moment, about 70 million people, roughly. Um, Algeria and Morocco are next with about 30 million each. Um, Saudi Arabia is said to be in the 20 to 25 million range. Well, Iraq is somewhere around 25 million, another major player. Saudi Arabia is said to be in the 20 to 25 million range, but that's probably quite inflated. <laughs> and the UN keeps uh, playing along with them, but um, the Saudis are probably inflating by on the or at least 10%, maybe even 20, 25% their population. It's, it's a matter of national prestige. Um, the, um, so the, the home of Islam can't be demographically small. So <laughs> it's something like that. Um, Syria and Yemen are both in the 15 to 20 range. So I don't know if you followed all that, but that's the kind of the major players. Well, Sudan, actually, uh, the Arab population of Sudan is quite important um, out of that whole total, but we can't separate it out usually. Um, and in fact, some of these other countries have major non-Arab populations. Um, by really being purists and trying to just capture Arab population, uh, Morocco, um, the Berber population, which I suppose in some ways is fairly assimilated now, but still has some identity, is on the order, I think, of 30-40% of the population. Algeria is 15-20% Berber. Um, Iraq, of course, we all, we're all educated on Iraq now. It's, the Kurds are, what do they usually say, 20%, 25%? Or not that much. Uh, anyway, so um, we have various minorities around the region. Um, when you say Arab, you mean linguistically? Because the Somalis are not Arabic, as far as I know. Yeah, you're right. They would be another one where there's, well, <clears throat> it's linguistic. I think it also is um, by blood, by ancestry. But, of course, there's been a lot of intermarriage in all these countries. I mean, the Arab population originated in the Arab Peninsula. And, um, so none of these countries, if you go back very far, the pure Arab would be very small. But linguistically, okay, we could say linguistically, yes. Well, just that people would go and say the Egyptian population is what they call the they're not really Arab, it's a thin Arab overlay. Yeah. Society is much older. Same with the Language would be the marker that would work best, I think you're right. In Somalia, you're right. Somalia, I'm not sure what the breakdown is, but it's, um, it's yeah. We have one of the largest um, Somalis. We have a Somali community. Which you can take you there in the yeah. uh, I saw someone <laughs> walking on campus. I saw someone I was pretty sure was small. Yeah. By the way, I think we might as well have this uh, a free give and take, and we'll quit at five o'clock or whatever the break point. <laughs> I know I have too many slides, although some of my favorite stuff is at the end. But, um, just to point out, um, I, in this presentation, I'm not going to say anything about Turkey and Iran. Sometimes I do, because um, you know there's a, some common history here, uh, a common culture. 
But uh, your demographer, um, I said Egypt's about 70 million uh, total population at this time, and uh, Turkey and Iran are, are the same. All three of those countries are almost the same population. So Turkey and Iran loom as very important um, countries in terms of population weight, and historically they uh, have been hugely important in this part of the world. Am I correct in seeing a very small green spot in northern Germany? Where? In France. Uh, that blue up there? Yes. Is that inclusive? Is that Luxembourg? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. That's, That's an accident. Oh, okay. That's what I was wondering. I don't think the tours However, there is an overseas Arab population, and an awful lot of Morocco has either lived, Moroccans, a lot of tribes in Morocco either currently lives in France, has lived there, or has, oh, France, or has family there. So. Um, Morocco in particular, and of course Algeria has a long history with France as well. Okay, I'm going to tell you a little bit of the stuff that I'm supposed to be good at, which is the, the demography. Then I want to talk about what I said. This talk is the elements of the political demography I'm going to give you today is mainly on the notion of demographic constraints, demographic pressures. And I want to tackle it from the macro and micro perspective. Macro being societal demographic structures. Micro being really talking about the structure of the family, family demography, and how that's changing, and speculate a bit on what that, what kind of implications that has for social and, and, and political uh, systems. Um, I think I'd better throw some numbers at you pretty quickly so we can get to the interesting stuff. This is a chart showing uh, growth, and the, the bars there, the histogram, is amount of growth. It's not total population. Uh, this is from um, mid-century right after World War II up uh, until uh, 20 years from now. A lot of my graphs will be up through 2020. Uh, the point here is that two points. One, uh, the growth rate in the region has been high in the latter part of the 20th century. Two and a half, three percent, uh, those of you who don't know, is a high uh, population growth rate. Um, it is, however, not extraordinarily high for the late 20th century. Um, many countries and many regions have had population growth rates for a decade or two at that level. I would say the Arab region persisted with that level a bit longer than other regions, but it's not extraordinary in having population growth uh, at that level. Um, the other point here is that although the uh, growth rate itself has turned around, the amount of population being added to these societies is continuing to grow. And I think actually that the peak period for adding numbers of persons is 2010 to 2020, so we haven't got there yet. I'm not going to focus much on this kind of demographic pressure, which is the kind of crudest, most fundamental sort, um, that is sheer adding numbers of persons. Um, if you're kind of an old-fashioned Malthusian, that might be what you would most focus on. I think it does raise issues, um, there's major issues of water in this region, um, food provision, food increasing will have to be imported already, large parts of it are, um, large fractions. So I think sheer numbers mean something, but I'm much more interested in Structure, demographic structure of society beyond the sheer numbers. Is, is there any sense of the relative contribution of fertility rates and women and childbearing years in this evidence you just presented? What this, um, that high growth rate, which started on 1950 and continued, I mean, um, first of all, I had to recognize that growth rates of 2.5 to 3%. Um, some of you know this, you, you take a, a growth rate, this is what you can do with your own investments, um, divide the growth rate into 70, 
and you get the period of time for doubling. So a growth rate of 2.5-3% means population doubling every 20, um, 25 years. Uh, that could not have been the situation in the Arab region or any place for centuries in the past. It has to be something recent. Um, this is uh, attributed um, primarily to declines in mortality as improved health that occurred some of this region starting in the 19th century, certainly through the first half of the 20th century. And um, fertility was largely unchanging until the last 20 or 30 years, as I'll show you. So basically, have high, you have growth because uh, death rates have fallen, but birth rates haven't. Um, and here are uh, trends in mortality. I'm going to show you a number of graphs that have four lines. A little hard to distinguish, I'm afraid. But one is the Arab region as a composite. And this is actually a population-weighted average. Uh, the, so it's, it's really for the whole region, uh, not the average of the countries. And then I've taken the largest countries in uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia, and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, one can look at regional, uh, how their region, we could talk about how it's different than the other regions. And in particular, at this juncture, um, West Africa has far higher mortality than you find elsewhere. But I think the main point here is we've had really sharp declines. I mean, this is a basically a 50-year or 45-year period from early 50s to late 1990s. And um, mortality has declined by two-thirds. Um, it's a really historic kind of change. But and the point is it's a universal phenomenon. Um, the Arab region is not particularly different in this respect. And Excuse me? Uh, up to one year. First year of life. So you're seeing at the, the outset here, um, this is by, by the way, per thousand. So about a, almost a fifth, certainly a sixth of, of children did not survive the first year. And now in the Arab region, we're down to what, 40 or 50, 60 out of so it's um, only 6% who aren't making it. So. Now, another, so that was the mortality, um, continuous sharp decline. I'm using UN data, by the way, which tends to smooth things out um, quite a bit. And I want to say something about that when we come to the fertility. Picture. So. Now the um, fertility picture, again, the Arab region uh, and the most populous countries in three other regions, and here you do get some distinction among the regions. Um, Nigeria has only recently begun to show some decline. This is a, a measure that's basically how many children a woman has over her lifetime. And um, have replacement level, we call replacement level fertility, that it should be around two. Um, so if you have four, then you're, you're having twice. As, you're doubling yourself generation by generation. What I would say here is that the Arab region um, starts out high, and its decline is a, takes off a bit later than uh, Indonesia and India, but not terribly later, in fact. Um, the Arab region line is more or less parallel to Indonesia and India. But it is a fact that this, the fertility decline did not start in, throughout, in most countries in the region until the 1960s or 70s. The country-by-country country situation is quite interesting, and I think in this talk I'm not going to give you enough flavor of diversity within the region, and I'm sorry about that, but um, it makes for a different kind of talk or a longer talk. Um, 
There is a lot of diversity in the region, and I'll just say that, and especially if we talk about fertility. Fertility is the main topic I've worked on over my career, so it's what I know best. Um, in the Arab region, um, you have fertility declines that started rather early historically. You have ones that started rather late. Um, you have extraordinary cases in the um, Arab uh, Peninsula of very high fertility until very recently that um, seems to be, uh, or can at least partly be explained by the oil economies fueled by oil, oil-rich economies. Um, so I'll give you some glimpse here of some diversity in the region, but um, you do have all sorts of regimes, uh, reproductive regimes and also political economic regimes operating. I think, in fact, um, I'll say this, and we could talk about it more if you'd like, but places I've worked over the years, I think it's uh, the, the fertility change in the region, in the Arab region over the last 30 years, I would say has been more responsive to um, economy um, and I think more responsive to political dynamics than most other regions. That's a very crude generalization, kind of, uh, exceptions. But um, it's, it's, you can certainly um, explain um, some of the onsets of fertility decline in a number of the countries by uh, radical shifts in the economy. Um, nearly eight, nearly in the 70s, of course, the oil, the oil wealth um, began to flow and was sustained for about 10 years. Um, it suddenly shut off in the mid-80s, and there's a, quite a few of these countries, that, um, and Algeria is a case, for example, where um, fertility plunged uh, as of the around 1980 or the early 80s, and it's fairly coincident with uh, with a sharp decline in the economies due to the shutting off of the oil well, the income from oil. You also have um, cases where I think um, political objectives, particularly Palestine, Israel, um, weigh fairly heavily in, um, in decision-making about childbearing in a way you don't find in most societies. So I think actually the Arab region lends itself to a more careful study of political and economic connections with fertility than are I would find elsewhere. Um, many regions you get a lot of purchase just by looking at trends in schooling. Education is a major force for change. Uh, trends in mortality. Um, there's a stock set of variables that have a lot to do with explaining fertility change in many regions that uh, I think mean less in the Arab region than some, um, some political and economic factors. Anyway, um, I have seven countries here that I'm showing you a number of charts. Egypt, the, the, the large, most populous countries. Egypt, notice, was a one of the earlier uh, declines, but it's kind of poked along. It's been slower than um, than uh, some of the others. Algeria, once it began to decline, declined very rapidly. <clears throat> and here, if we move to the east, this was, um, you know, the, Algeria and Morocco are the two um, largest countries of the so-called Maghreb, the west part of the Arab uh, Empire, of the Arab region. And Egypt is the first, well, is the first country really in the Meshrek, the, the east. And these are countries of Meshrek and, um, and the Arab Peninsula. Um, Yemen is a distinct outlier here. Fertility remains very high. Although, um, well, I'll get into it. I am using um, UN figures, and uh, there are some Arab demographers who believe that Yemen's fertility is quite a bit lower than what's shown here. But the UN Population Division is very stubborn about this one, for a reason I haven't quite understood. Syria is another case where I think one can say that economic downturn, which occurred very dramatically in the mid-1980s, 
um, what's converted also, in, among other things, into fertility decline. Um, I want to actually move on to other things. I want to talk about what demographic change has to do with politics. But um, I do want to tell you quickly, I did some analysis a few years ago comparing the era of fertility transition with other regions. Kind of a big view sort of thing. And interestingly, um, Hoda Rashad, who, I, who we just spoke about, who I work with in Cairo, did the same exercise about the same time as I did. We both came to roughly the same conclusions, which are as follows. Um, these are some common assertions about fertility decline in, in the Arab region. And by common, I mean among um, demographers, actually, not just people outside demography. Um, some fairly eminent demographers like John Caldwell and uh, John Cleland have made uh, assertions of, of the following sort. One is that uh, it's been historically late, that the Arab region um, has been um, intrinsically resistant to making a shift to smaller families. It's usually attributed to Islam or position of women, something like that. Um, I think it's not true. If you look at the historical record, you do the comparison of other regions, um, you can single out uh, a few countries in the region that have uh, shown very late declines. But if you take the Arab region as a whole, it's not particularly late. Uh, it's not particularly early. It's a rather middling experience. So I think that's a misconception. There's also a feeling that um, fertility has probably proceeded slowly, again, because of Islam or women or uh, uh, ineffective governance. Um, all sorts of explanations are given. Again, uh, not true. In fact, um, we've had some very rapid declines in the Arab region. Uh, once they get going, it falls off a cliff. So, um, There's also been an assertion that, um, you know, that the, the notion in demographic transition theory is that uh, mortality declines uh, and then uh, that causes population growth, which really forces a decline in fertility as well to kind of right the imbalance. Um, so you expect that there to be, that when mortality declines, there will be a fertility response. People restrict their childbearing once they have lots of surviving children, uh, once they can observe that children are surviving to adulthood. Um, sometimes assertions made that in the Arab region, uh, this is really a, in some ways an elaboration of the uh, first point, the historically late. Um, that um, the Arab region had um, much improved health, um, great decline in mortality, yet still fertility just stayed where it was. Something, again, about being a uh, uniquely pronatalist region. Um, I don't think it's true in general. There are actually, uh, here if you look at the um, oil-rich um, states of the Arab Peninsula, this, this would be true. Uh, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Emirates, these places um, did have uh, very good health conditions for some decades without having a fertility response. But for the populous regions of the uh, countries of the region as a whole, I think it's not true. Similar statement that the decline occurred late in relation to income, that these were wealthy societies yet still having large family sizes. Um, that actually, I think, is somewhat true. Um, I think uh, if you take standard measures of wealth, uh, of these that the fertility probably should have fallen earlier in many of the countries than it did. Uh, in fact, I think in the Arab region, as I intimated a while ago, you have a situation where wealth, um, particularly from the petroleum economy, um, allowed them to sustain higher fertility than they might have otherwise. So they actually used income in a rather opposite way that it's usually used. Finally, um, a very common assertion is that um, kind of meant to support everything above, 
is that um, women's schooling, uh, actually I have another one after this. Uh, women's schooling, uh, the fact that women are uneducated, large fraction of women uneducated, is the reason why the region's been resistant to fertility decline. Um, it's not true. In fact, what's really interesting is that the era of uh, fertility declines occurred under unusually low uh, conditions of, of female schooling. So um, perhaps they would have occurred earlier had um, women been better educated. But um, it's actually, you could take many of these countries as, as, as refutation of an argument that female schooling is an important condition for fertility decline. Um, because many of them have substantial declines at low levels of female schooling. Final point, uh, kind of subtle point, probably doesn't interest anybody but us demographers, um, sometimes said that Arab regions started off with high fertility, and usually high fertility, uh, pre-transition in, um, in the more traditional reproductive regime, and that's clearly the case. Um, our early measurements of fertility in the Arab region are very high, um, seven, eight, nine births per woman on average. Um, it seems to be a society that... Uh, was organized, uh, whether deliberately or not, but organized in such a way that, um, that family sizes were very large and women bore a lot of children. Okay. Um, now let me just try to get to a couple of the arguments about how demographic change might bear on, um, or, or the kind of uh, issues it raises for social and political organization of society. Um, you know, in the time available, I have to give you kind of capsule versions of these arguments. Um, th this is now the macro perspective will be that we have um, the demographic transition has brought um, enormous population growth to these societies and changes in age structure that need to be accommodated and um, the first way to look at that is a, is a more uh, simplistic Malthusian view that um, if you have as I already alluded to in one of the first slides I showed you if you have growing population um, that presents uh, stresses of various kinds on resources, uh, whether it's water, whether it's employment, whatever. Um, I actually don't want to dwell on this. I want to take a little more refined view of this. But just to show you where we are, um, these, of course, projections from 2000 to 2020, that doesn't mean they're going to occur, but they're not likely to be far off. And um, despite the fact that we now have quite a bit of decline in fertility in this region, there's going to be quite a bit more growth. And a place like Yemen, according to these projections, is going to double in the next 20 years. I, don't, I think that may be a bit excessive, but 50-60% um, uh, increases in population size are common for many of these countries that are populous countries. Okay. But I think the more interesting argument that I'd like to spend a bit of time on here, and I'm going to give you a corresponding set of arguments at the family level uh, within kin groups, is changes in the age structure. And um, it's not a particularly complicated argument. Um, demographic transition usually consists of a mortality decline occurring and then followed by declines in fertility and levels of childbearing with a lag of a generation or more, 20, 30, 40 years. Usually not as much as 40 years, but certainly 20, 30 years. Um, I think you can, some of you know this anyway, or if not, I think it's sort of intuitive uh, if you reflect on it for a moment, that the result of having a decline in um, mortality is children, children uh, people don't die in infancy and childhood, means you have larger cohorts reaching adulthood than you had before. So you have successively larger cohorts. Um, and as 
because individuals aren't dying in childhood. And that leads to what we might call youth bulge. Um, it's not a term actually I used until recently, but Craig used it on the phone with me, and then I realized sort of in the what, what there is of a political demography literature, they talk about youth bulbs. So, so I'm using it. It's um, not a technical demographic term, but <laughs> I think it captures the idea. So the notion here is that you have youth bulge means you have, if we look at, let's say, the population over age 15 or over age 20, or in the key adult years, let's say 15 to 60, which is what I'm going to show, that we have uh, an excessive weighting towards the younger ages. Now, what do we make of the youth bulge? A really interesting thing, uh, some of you may know this, Ed I'm sure knows this, uh, many of you may know this, is that there are two takes on this uh, in the literature of the last 10 years. Um, especially among the development economists, there's a great deal of enthusiasm about the youth bulge. They see the, the youth bulge as being a, uh, an infusion of, of young workers to the workforce. And they think a, a workforce weighted towards the young is intrinsically uh, more skilled, uh, more energetic, and therefore more productive. So in their mind, youth bulge gives a kick to the economy. Um, and a cheaper. Yeah. And this notion of demographic bonus is a very big deal in kind of international population development circles these days. Uh, I should acknowledge Ed Crenshaw was one of the first persons to notice it. A paper published in 1997. Um, and I was talking to him earlier to confirm what I suspected there was kind of an independent invention here. But um, around the mid-1990s, a number of uh, economists and Ed Crenshaw, just working with empirical data, noticed that there was a strong uh, empirical correlation between um, a young workforce, a young uh, adult, year, adult um, part of the population weighted towards the young adult years, correlation between that and income growth. Um, Okay, that's the demographic bonus, it's called demographic gift. Demographic curse, um, I don't know if that's a standard thing, but uh, we had a meeting in, in Cairo in January on issues of population and poverty. And an Egyptian uh, economist we invited to speak said she was sick of hearing about the demographic bonus. She said it could just as easily for us be a demographic curse. So I like that, curse. So <laughs> we have bonus and curse. And it's a challenge in absorbing the larger cohorts. Um, clearly a refined analysis here would, would explore I think both of these can be right can't they it's, it's a matter of the uh, condition so, uh, it's a contextualizing do you want to elaborate a little on absorbing <laughs> that implies mm. um, <laughs> well it's a matter of, of well when I say that I mean first of all uh, finding jobs finding good employment uh, one could step back earlier and talk about schooling. Um, but I must say most societies, if they have a determination, seem to be able to get people schooled to some level. We may have deterioration in quality of schooling due to larger cohorts. I think that's quite possible. But the sheer fact of schooling doesn't seem to be hugely threatened by large cohorts, although there is an effect. But I think that the key concern here is finding good, good livelihoods. Um, but there are some other um, things here. Um, housing, <laughs> sounds like a trivial thing, but I'll show you in a moment some figures on marriage. Um, it's also a matter of getting married. Uh, now, getting married is required, conditional on, on having a good livelihood to some degree, but also a matter of finding, having housing, a place to live separately, and um, 
Well, Did you have something else in mind? Or? Well, I was thinking more of entitlements in terms of food and transportation and subsidized rents and all kinds of things that uh, could certainly be the downside of this call. They're usually the, the young people who are paying for those entitlements. The curse really comes right. But you're right. You will have issues of transport infrastructure um, kind of thing. Certainly, I mean, health infrastructure, um, until large cohorts start having children, they are not much of a tax on I mean, the healthiest part of the population is 50 or 20. Schooling, you could make a case of schools. But I can tell I think society seems to be able to finesse that. Yeah, I think the primary thing the economists talk about in terms of curves is that it reduces the savings rate. If you're having to spend money on children rather than saving it and using it more productively for different investments, they've always phrased it uh, mm-hmm. like Kelly. Right. Always phrased it in terms of savings rate. But uh, here I've been trying to focus on once we reach adulthood, and um, at, at which point they can be gainfully employed and contributing at age 15, 20. Um, there's certainly an issue of children, having excessive numbers of children, you could see as a drain uh, against saving. That's I think the, the, the main, the common line of, of approaching this for economists when they ask, uh, this is a question of bonus versus curse, is macroeconomic policy. But if you're talking about just within the adult cohort, one of the biggest curses would be income inequality, for instance. You have this mm-hmm. enormous competition in the wage market, mm-hmm. and that drives down wages. Pulls down, yeah. And so, there, yeah, there's some curse to it. It's not good to be an individual. Mm-hmm. To be a member of a large cohort. Right. Well, I, I this is annex. I was part of baby boom. Like, you know, long. <laughs> no, it was, it was good for the country. So, <laughs> talking about the macro level, it's, it depends on what level you're talking about. Um, I'm sorry to cut off discussion, but I think I'll keep moving. <laughs> this youth bulge, uh, the economic implications, which is the demographic bonus, has had a lot of empirical work, uh, including Ed's work. Uh, I think the political implications are more speculative, although Craig has looked at this stuff more than me. And, um, it's pretty, pretty speculative. I didn't get to talk. I've been trying to school myself for today's session. I was reading some of Jack Goldstone's work, and there is some work around. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Did, did um, Jack actually find youth bulge? Well, he did in the classic book, but, you know, in the book on Have you ever found it in here? No. On, on Europe. Um, on, his book on England. Not in the work that other people have done. Don't find youthful effects yeah. on, like, civil war. Well, you see, my, my bottom line here is to be fairly skeptical. Um, well, let's look. Just let's go at the empirical picture. Um, what I'm going to show you now are a couple of graphs, I think three or four, taking the ratio of those 15 to 29 to those 30 to 59. They're, of course, unequal age groups, so um, we had no, if the cohorts were all the same size, this ratio would be under one, um, because uh, it's a 15-year group compared to a 30-year group. But, um, I've got the, uh, I've got four dates, 1960, 1980, 2000, and, and 2020, which is projected, but by the way, most of these people are born, we're talking about in 2020, um, are already, already alive, so that projection isn't particularly risky. Um, and uh, I've got the same comparison, the Arab region plus these three populous countries of other regions. And um, so what do we see? Uh, this is data, by the way, I just looked at in the last couple of weeks uh, in advance of coming here. Um, the, we're called, let's call it the youth bulge, for simple language, um, does rise and then decline in all regions, uh, except for Nigeria, which 
We don't yet reach a point where it's declining. Uh, but if the air-to-air -air region does have a classic pattern arise and then decline, first point I'd make. Um, secondly, the uh, use voltage in the Arab region is somewhat higher than either India or Indonesia experience. Um, so one could claim that this is a bit more of a stressful factor for Arab societies than, than these two populous Asian societies. Um, question I don't know how to answer is whether um, if we take, for example, the blue line, 19, let's take the present. Um, year 2000. Uh, the Arab region is slightly above 1, this ratio. Uh, <coughs> India is slightly above 0.8. Um, Indonesia is about 0.9. Um, I don't know how to say whether that distinction between 0.85 and 1.0 is uh, something that should make a difference. That would take the analysis beyond what I can show you today. And in Nigeria, is, is, it, it makes the point that um, if we were to, if you were to want to single out the Arab region and say that it's had this problem uh, to a greater extent than other regions, um, West Africa, uh, especially represented by Nigeria, seems to have more stress in this respect than the Arab region. The other point is that the Arab region is on the verge of a huge shift here. If you think the difference between 1 and 0.8 is important, and if there's anything going on here, that kind of difference has to mean something, then um, in the next 20 years, uh, uh, that this source of demographic pressure is going to sharply decline. So we're at a period, we've been in a period the last 20 years where this problem is at its greatest extent. Um, I'll show you these seven countries, but I don't know if we want to, if there's much to, to do to, um, to, to dwell on them. Um, Algeria, uh, Egypt, Morocco, they all show, I think, the same general pattern, um, somewhat different levels. Um, Algeria peaks is one of the highest peaks. Well, Yemen actually is the highest peak. I use the same scale here. Um, so you can take a look. Um, there's some diversity among the countries of the region. But they're all, right now, in every case, we're in a period of declining youth bulge. Of, um, so again, if, if, it's a, if it's a curse, then uh, we're heading in the right direction. If it's a bonus, then, um, then, then, we're, then the best days are past. John, some of those like Syria, you're anticipating in the next 20 years a really big drop. Yes, phenomenal. And given that we're only in 2004, what is the basis for that projection? I think it's almost a certain. You remember that um, there are almost, yeah. almost all these people. Anyone who is, the, the, this, by age band here is 15 to 59. So the youngest is 15. So in 2020, the people who are 15 were born in 2005. So they're not, they're not yet born. Um, so the people 15 to 19 in this ratio are not yet born, but everyone else is. So, yeah, when the day comes, it probably won't be precisely this number. But it's going to be pretty close. I think we're pretty much locked into um, something close to this. So the bold in these countries now, when they used to show these demographic Hmm. Maps. Yeah, it's Maps really coming in. It's really coming in now. Yeah. I guess I could have shown you one of those, but yeah, it's really coming in. It looks like a Christmas tree. Truncated. No, it doesn't look like a Christmas tree anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's got, 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 it's got now I should have said, you know, that because um, we, you all must see it in journalism. There's, there's this view that um, the Arab region is politically 
is addressed in various ways and in political upheaval, there's a lot of political tension because of this kind of legions of, of young men. It's a very common portrait in the popular, in the mass, me uh, mass media. Um, well, if that's your image of this region, um, you know, that's rapidly changing. <laughs> Masses of young males are uh, are disappearing. Yeah, uh, these countries, um, when you come to the Gulf countries, the oldest countries, Saudi Arabia is the only one here. Do you, in this calculation, uh, the expatriates, because Saudi Arabia is at most 50%, maybe 45 50% of the people that were working for other countries there, yeah. so that has been taken into consideration or not in statistics? Um, you know, I should be able to give you a quite confident answer to that. I'm using the UN data. Um, in the case of Saudi Arabia, I think it is intended to be just the nationals, I think. But the Gulf states, I think some of them, they include the whole the nationals and non-nationals. Some of the Gulf states are... Saudi Arabia, what fraction do you think is non-national? 40, 45%. In Saudi Arabia? Yeah, Kuwait. Uh, yeah, I know. Some of the Gulf states, it's, yeah, some of the Gulf states, 70, 80 percent. Yes, it's mostly And it's certainly young. It's certainly young, too. It's younger adults, mainly. No, but, and also some of them have families. Yeah. give birth to children, and then younger people are also recruited. Below the age of, let's say, 18, up. Yeah. But the job, but there's a question of the job problem that we saw by taking out the foreigners, assuming that the police and Saudi can work. Well, <laughs> which might be a bold assumption. But I'm not sure I know, uh, I should know the answer to that. I could go check the UN um, documentation on this. This is one of the few places where, this, this region is one place where this makes a big difference. What, yeah. I, just, I have a good explanation for Yemen is your outlier. It's terrorism agricultural economy collapsed in the late 80s and early 90s, primarily because of imported food. And so if you look at Yemen, it was never a very urban society, but it's becoming that now very rapidly. And so I suspect you noticed that in the fertility was dipping down yeah. very last. These people are moving to the city and they're no longer agrarian workers and there's no longer a payoff for having lots of children and they'll probably fall suit very soon. Yemen's very, it was a very different culture, much more traditional. Mm -hmm. And many of these other parts of the area. Mm. And uh, they had a very elaborate agriculture. That conforms with what I've, what I've heard. And a very labor intensive system. And it's been destroyed by imported foods. So this is an argument that economic distress is driving fertility decline. Well, I would say social organization. You know, I would say social organization drives it. If you're living in an oil state where there's a lot of money flowing and the way you earn your living doesn't change, I don't think the fertility will change. Mm -hmm. In fact, you might use that money to translate it directly to more fertility. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you're forced to earn your living in a way that having children is inconvenient, like living in an apartment in the city and having to go to work every day, you might not want eight kids. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what's happening in Yemen. I think that it's finally modernizing, I guess if you want to call it that, although it's pretty tragic. Yeah. Oh. You were saying that the popular perception I guess I want to be sure I understand this. You're not saying the popular perception of the live young people is wrong. You're just saying it will change in 20 years from now. Yeah. Right. Well, I am saying two things. Well, I'm saying, well, you know, we're already, a, look, at the peak here is 1980. Um, yeah, right. In Iraq, it's still well over one, same. Yes. 
one means it's quite hot. And when it's way over one, like in, in Yemen, I think it was. Yeah. I, I, I think you're right, Rick. Um, Rick, you can make that argument. If we look, here's my only standard comparison to three other countries. And um, India and Indonesia never, well, they barely reach one in their historical experience. Yeah. Nigeria is something else again. Um, whereas you're saying that if we look at their region as a whole, is over one at these two dates, 80 and 2000. Yeah. And we've got numbers over one here all over the place. So it's generating like job crunch and political instability, perhaps. Well, just four years ago, which is a lot closer than 16 years from now, yeah. you had over one in three of the four cases, way over one in some of them. So I think you're right. There is some grounds to say that these, these were, um, okay, I would give kind of a, a one hand, other hand kind of story here. I think the air region is on the high side in terms of youth bulge. I don't see it off the end of the scale, but one would have to have an assessment, which I've not carried out, of what it means to be two-tenths of a, uh, two-tenths higher here, or one-tenth higher. But the air region is on the high side whether it's so high that we should think of it as un unusually pressured or pressured to an excessive extent by excessive youth. Um, I can't really answer well, that question. You had development reports you were talking about earlier. They, they, they compare it to Sub-Saharan Africa or, or other African states and on average Arabs do better. When they compare them to Northeast Asia, say Korea, which 30 years ago would have been a very comparable demographic picture, both in education level and population size and health, they look terrible. Yeah, they terrible, yeah. So, you know, it depends on where you're comparing. You're comparing it to Korea, Thailand, um, so on and so right. forth. Then they're doing Laos, but yeah. they're doing, or, or Latin America. Yeah. Doing quite yeah. Um, I actually, let me show you a few more things that make this a bit more interesting. And there is a case here that, um, the demographic, that the changing age structure has been uh, created more stress here than you found in other in other societies. Um, one thing that some do, that uh, argument some make, uh, and I think it has some um, validity, some it's tenable, is that um, you want to look not only just at sheer numbers, but um, at numbers according to key social uh, characteristics, and a key one is schooling. And the point here is that not only are the younger cohorts larger than the older cohorts, but those who are, have high levels of schooling are even larger. Uh, and if there is a problem of, of, of generational succession, of, um, of one older generation passing on power and responsibility to the younger generation, that this is even exacerbated when we look at things like education. Here I've done something a little bit different from the previous chart. I've taken two cohorts basically a generation apart those aged 20 to 24, and those aged 50 to 54. And I've taken survey data for three countries. Um, so you see that, um, again, we have larger cohorts. Uh, in Egypt, that young group is about two and a half times larger than the older group. Um, Saudi Arabia, three and a half. Yemen, three and a half. But those who have um, secondary schooling or better, um, the ratios are much higher. So it's not just that the gener younger generations are bigger, the, um, the better educated are even bigger. <laughs> and there is an argument, um, and I, I, won't, uh, I won't claim that I support it or, or, or don't agree with it, that, that this adds an extra bit of stress. You have young educated um, males and women who um, 
would like to be moving into society into meaningful roles, but um, they're blocked by an older generation, most of which is less schooled than they are. Then its levels of frustration are higher if you're biding your time for your place and you can see that the people ahead of you, that the older generation that you're waiting to vacate their slot um, is unschooled or has little schooling. So I think you get the thrust of the argument. It's a, a bit of a mechanistic kind of argument, but um, I think it has some plausibility. <clears throat> um, I want to move to the micro now, and we're going to have to close off, I think, pretty soon. So I'm not going to get all the way through. But um, all the discussion so far is looking at the society uh, at the macro level, age structure of the society. But corresponding to that, uh, at the family level, the structure of kin groups, I'm going to call it kin groups, you can say families, uh, is changing. Uh, unavoidably, inevitably. Uh, when you have declines in mortality at start and then with some lag or followed by declines in fertility, what happens? Well, one thing that absolutely happens due to the decline in mortality is you have longer coexistence of kin relationships. And what some authors about this region note particularly is the longer coexistence of father-son. That is, men move farther into adulthood before their father dies. Um, and Father's death um, means inheritance, means um, the opening up of niches, uh, there are family uh, niches, um, and that's prolonged, that's postponed when you have declines in mortality. What you also have is that uh, because of the decline in mortality starting with a lag in the decline in fertility is initially, if you look horizontally, as we're looking at brothers, cousins, um, that group is getting bigger initially. Uh, and then eventually it decreases as family size. The um, yeah uh, um, the argument that's been made, and it's been made most effectively by Philippe Favre, who's a um, French demographer, is that what you have here is that within the family, you have these younger generations of men um, who are reaching 20, 25, 30 years old, um, and whereas in past times they would have become uh, head of the family. Their father would have died. They would have inherited property. They would have been, uh, in some ways, more important property is a social status that comes with being the head of the family. The male, this is a, you know, a highly patriarchal society. Being head of the patrilline is very important. Um, this was a role you could have assumed in the past at age, by age 25 or 30, for many males, not all males, of course, because there were brothers before. One brother got the role, the other didn't. But, but Philippe Park is now we have a case where men are reaching that age of early adulthood, their father's still alive, um, and then on top of that, um, they have a lot more brothers that they're having some sense to contend with um, for various kinds of attention and resources. So the question is, uh, this is kind of an interesting argument, I think, and it makes sense of uh, kind of back of the envelope kind of calculation, but I wanted to pursue this a little more, more detail. So I want to show you a little bit of work I've done, and I guess we're going to have to cut off. But the way I uh, approach this, uh, I'm not aware of there being um, survey data in which you can study um, kinship configurations in just the way you need to. Um, that is fine. That is survey data that tell you about multiple generations uh, and both uh, that is vertical extension and horizontal extension. All the survey data we collect, and we collect tons of it uh, in the Arab region and elsewhere, uh, doesn't really give you a portrait of the. Of, of the structure of kin groups, of the family demography. 
So I've fallen back on the technique of kinship microsimulation. Um, some of you may know about this sort of analysis. If you don't, um, we're not gonna, I'm not going to give you all the gory detail. Um, but basically, you, since you don't have <laughs> empirical data, you create it. You, know, you just sit in front of your own computer and create data. <laughs> um, create families, create individuals. First, guess. It's a really, a, really go to your head if you do this for a while. Um, and you just input um, schedules of, of, of deaths by age or probability of dying by age, um, probability of having children of certain uh, families, certain family sizes, um, probabilities of marrying by certain ages. It's a bunch of probability distributions that you input. And from that, you can generate um, individuals and their life course their, their, and their family, their whole family situation, their whole family configuration. So I've written a program that does this. Um, there's some other programs around, too. Um, and I've run this for um, four regimes that are where I, the input schedules, the distributions that I use are taken from data from the Arab region. I can tell you what that is if you're curious. But I have four regimes I call pre-transition, early transition, mid-transition, post-transition. And they are, as shown there, in terms of mortality and fertility. So the question I'm trying to ask is... Um, how does that situation, uh, fathers and sons and brothers, how does that change with demographic change? So the claim is that demographic transition places stress on generational succession. That men experience more adult years than the surviving father, and men have more brothers as they enter adulthood, as demographic transition proceeds. So is it true? Um, so I've done kinship microsimulations. Here's what I find. First question is, uh, what is the likelihood that your father is surviving when you reach certain ages? And I've taken age 20 and 35. So simple, what's the probability that, uh, given that you're alive, that your father as well is alive? Um, and you can see um, how this proceeds over demographic transition. Of course, likelihood that your father's alive is much lower at age 35 than age 20. That's the difference between the green and the blue bars. But the important point here is to look at the progression of the bars from pre to post transition. Um, and actually at age 20, the progression is not so dramatic. Uh, even the pre-transition regime, um, males who survived age 20, about 70, 75% of them are likely to have their father surviving. That does rise to about 90%, a little over 90% in post-transition. But at age 35, we have a pretty sharp increase here from 45% to 75% or so. So this is clearly true, um, that with demographic transition, um, coexistence of, of men with their fathers into adulthood is much more likely. And I think it's quite significant. In fact, we don't think much about, but I think it's quite potentially quite significant, especially in this kind of patriarchal, patrilineal society. The number of brothers is a little more interesting situation. Um, here I'm showing the mean number of surviving brothers, again at age 20 and 35. Um, under the various regimes. Um, and this doesn't change very much until one gets as that, that change from mid to post-transition. In the post-transition regime, you're less likely, you have fewer brothers uh, when you reach adulthood. But um, across these first three, I don't see much shift. In the literature I've been reading, uh, where people are making this argument, would imply that that Distinction pre, early, and mid should be more uh, significant than it seems to be here. Turns out a big factor here is that uh, 
this is all conditional on your reaching age 20. I mean, a lot of the difference, the big difference between the pre, early, and mid is that there's a lot of death before age 20. But given that you've reached age uh, 20, um, and there is some family resemblance with chance of mortality, um, the, the, the number of surviving brothers is not much different. So, um, what do we say? It looks like um, there's some movement in the right direction as expected. Um, that is, uh, as demographic transition proceeds, more likely to coexist with your father, more likely to have, uh, you're going to have more brothers. Um, what are the consequences of this? Um, plausibly, a very direct consequence is that you will marry later or you'll be unable to marry. And I guess since we have cut off, I'll just show you these last figures. Um, this is something, this is something you can take away today. <laughs> I think this is quite important. Um, there have been the Middle East um, or the Arab region. One way in which it stands out is male marriage. If you look at in comparative sense, um, I'm showing you some numbers here from a database of marriage statistics that UN put together. They have a region they call Middle East, which uh, I think includes may include Turkey and Iran. Not sure. It's a bit of a strange agglomeration. But I think for our purposes, it will do. Um, I've also taken out their figures for South and Southeast Asia and East Asia. We usually think of East Asia as a region of late marriage. Um, here we have the percent of males ages 20 to 24 that are married. The Arab region, and we have two time periods, the broad time periods. This is a bit, this is kind of rough here, but I think the general picture we get is correct. Um, the Arab region is the lowest here, meaning that males are less likely to be married in the male region, in the Arab region, in the Middle East, than these other regions. That is, there seems to be either a postponement of marriage or an inability to marry among males in the Middle East that is, as compared to other regions. Um, if you look at trends, it's really just actually turning the difference between these bars into an annual change, percentage point change. Um, the three regions, um, this is a percentage point decline, the percent of males who are married um, from say, 20 years ago to present, something like that. Um, here, um, East Asia has shown a sharper decline than the Middle East, but the Middle East is still large as compared to South and Southeast Asia. If we look at this, uh, age 25 to 29, the next group up, again, the Arab region is the uh, lowest. That is, males are less likely to be married in the Arab region, or uh, Middle East, excuse me, than the other regions. And we have this really stands out in terms of uh, percentage point decline. So um, uh, I guess I won't get into the next. I had one other presentation. But, but um, the point here would be that um, males are, are, for whatever reason, uh, um, and I think the demography of the family is likely to be an important reason, um, along with general macroeconomic uh, general performance of these economies, um, males are finding it difficult to marry in this region. Uh, and the average age of marriage now calculated different ways for Arab males is on the order of 28 or 30 years. And this is the highest in the world as far as if you want to talk about major regions. Um, I think it's because of, uh, I think it's problems of generational succession that um, they are, um, it's more difficult when their fathers are surviving. Um, they have brothers. Um, 
You know, um, I was talking to someone, I guess it was at lunch and it wasn't uh, anybody here, but um, what's happening with marriage in the Arab region is incredibly interesting. And um, marriage in the Arab region now is, is everyone who's kind of journalistic observers and also social scientists all comment on it. There seems to be unanimity. Um, it's gotten very expensive, for one thing, just financially expensive. Um, and it gets more and more expensive as time goes by. As a result, it's getting more and more difficult to get married. Um, for, and this is true for both males and females. Um, one has a sense it's a dysfunctional sort of thing. Um, so the financial outlay has gotten greater. There's still an expectation that, you, that the male should have a livelihood. There's a hope that the couple would have a place to live on their own. Um, there's all sorts of expectations and requirements that are increasingly difficult to meet. And yet, um, one senses that um, the value placed on being married in the marital, and in the marital state um, remains as high as ever. There's enormous um, kind of, I guess one would say, frustration about this, and certainly an incredible amount of commentary about this problem. You're describing how beautiful in marriage, though. That's a little question you're being I didn't think the Arabs had those rules. Well, I'm telling you, they, their resource requirements for marriage are very high. They expect a lot. It's not just them. I, mean, I don't know. I'm just curious how you react to the But, I mean, this is a very sore point in the Arab world. But it goes with that large male youth bowl that you said was deteriorating. The story that I hear all the time is high rates of unemployment, Mm-hmm. particularly for young, educated men. They're not going to marry, nor will they be allowed to marry by the wife, by the woman's family if they have no employment. No exactly, job. yeah, the women. So they even go abroad. They may went to Iraq if they were from Egypt mm-hmm. uh, to try to get money to come home until they can get enough money to, not just because the wedding is expensive, they have to have a job. Yeah. A they can't get one. Then there's the, the problem of where to live. And urbanization is seen, again, in the folk wisdom as a huge problem. Exactly. you've got... So cities like Cairo that you can't find any place to live and you can't live in a back room in your parents' place. Although, so that, although by the way, there's, there's quite a lot of that, but it's not considered desirable. It, there has it, to be. It's not conducive to marriage. Yeah. I think this is a huge point of pedophilia. This is the focus. Well, I think, I think the empirical, empirical research shows that it's true. I think it's true. So so that, that also means that unless you have a lot of prostitution, young men can't get laid. Uh, except by murder. I have, um, there are people who think sexual frustration is one of the things going on here. I'm not so sure about that myself. But, um, what? I think it's pretty rare, but I don't have figures on that. Well, polygyny is, is very rare. It's actually outlawed in a couple of these countries. It's illegal, um, but it still occurs, I suppose. Um, you should have, because of the pyramid, you should have, um, the male should be in a, in a more advantaged position because of the age pyramid like this. The youth bulge goes along with an age pyramid like this, so given the usual kind of age gap or age difference, um, there should be excess women as against as compared to men. So that should be in their favor. It's something more about these resource constraints. But I think the resource constraints... If you want to live in a city, if you want to live in a village, a new hut isn't so hard, nor is one more mouth to feed. This is the folk wisdom again. 
if you're in a largely agricultural based community. But the urbanization rates have been pretty high in most of the Arab states. And it's different if you have an apartment in the city and you have to have a job. You can't, you can't have a room on the apartment. It's hard. Yeah. 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 Uh, in the independent variable, from the research point of view, we made female different ages. But a factor that which we all know that, that the process of urbanization in the Middle East, except Egypt and Yemen, which had larger group of people, the rest of them are becoming very much urban. Oh, they're highly urbanized, yeah. Yes, so that's every one of them. And this is a very important factor that whether in this research that that factor has been taken into consideration or not. To manage uh, is, is, is one of those uh, in the city of Cairo, which is about 14 to 15 million people. Of Tehran, any one of these major cities of Damascus, uh, it's an apartment, and uh, then this polygamy that is going to be It is no longer really something pervasive because it's very difficult. It is uh, very expensive to have a wife and family. And so there's other variables whether that has been taken into consideration or not which is the life expectancy of the children, the mortality rate because of vaccinations and others, they survived more than before. And the family planning in these countries, which 20 years ago were not existing, but mostly some of them now they are practicing it, so there are less children born. So I do not know whether this trend has taken into consideration or not. Mm-hmm. Well, I think all the factors you point to are part of the picture. Yeah. And um, what, what is clearly a fact, first of all, is that there are um, there's been a historical trend towards um, later marriage, and, and possibly non-marriage. What we know is we have cross-sections of the percentage married by age. And in many Arab countries now, at, at age 25 to 29, even 30 to 34, you're getting percentages of males and females who are not married, who have never married, that are uh, we've never observed in the past. At least we didn't observe in the past. So there's been a huge increase in the fraction of young adults who are not married. Ages which in the past they would have been married. So that's a fact. Um, secondly, I think all accounts are that the, the cost, the financial cost of getting married and, and the other kind of resource considerations like jobs and housing um, have, gotten, have gotten more difficult. Well, the, the financial cost has gotten higher and there's a perception that the um, employment opportunities and housing opportunities are far tougher than they used to be. Now, what lies behind all that um, is something else again. Just what I'm saying here as a demographer is I think part of it is that the what I'm calling the demography of the family, demography of the kin group, has changed in a way that makes it harder for young men and women to start on their own. And it's one thing is that you have males who still have their fathers surviving at a time when they wouldn't have in the past. I'm not going to say this is the whole explanation, but I think it's a contribution. And they have a lot of brothers. There's, they have a set of brothers and cousins, by the way. I mean, you really have to think of brothers and cousins because they're all kind of drawing on the same set of larger kin um, Source it's an economy that includes brothers and cousins. It goes, it's, it's all the brothers of the older generation that are part of the household economy here. Um, and there's a lot more of younger males who have to, some sense. So I think that's part of what's going on here, but I don't think by any means it's the whole story. Um, so, but um, the, I have colleagues, uh, and I know of projects that are actually right now uh, going in the field this year and raising money for work next year that's going to look at marriage, cost of marriage, changing cost of marriage, try to understand this a bit better. Um, measure uh, what, it's, what people are spending on marriage. And, um, you know, I don't know if where you stand philosophically as a social scientist, but it, 
the face of it, it seems like quite dysfunctional situation they've worked themselves into. Um, but that, that is that this that, make, that marriage has become so difficult. Um, it seems like they set up a system of rules that has is really blocking something that's quite a desired goal, which is to be married um, and have children. I mean, I, I, I think there is a feeling that one or two children is affordable once you get married, uh, but you have to get married, <laughs> and uh, that seems to be a huge hurdle. So, um, the Arab demographers I work with just can't believe the numbers they're seeing. Um, there are Gulf states, these conservative Gulf states, where women 30 to 34, you'll get 5, 6, 7, 8% who are not married yet. And no one can understand this. People just understand how this could happen. <laughs> that these places wherever women used to always be married by age 20. Um, and no one quite knows what these women are doing with their lives either. Really, they're 30, 34, they're by and large not working. No one quite knows how they spend their time. <laughs> but um, they are unable to get married. So I'll just say by way of, I'll skip, I have a whole analysis here of consanguinity, marriage between cousins, which I think is actually a very interesting issue, but we don't, unless you really want to spend more time here, I don't think I can go through. But I had some interesting results on that. But my two-slide summary would be that um, I think the demographic pressure is somewhat weaker than often claimed, but you know, we've had a bit of back and forth on that. There's a bit of glass half-empty, glass half-full. You have to go beyond what I've done to pin out, to get a metric here to decide how much um, youth bulge really makes a difference. I haven't pinned that down yet. Um, a second point is I think in general, uh, you know, there's a tendency um, among demographers and especially people outside the region to kind of have a language of Arab exceptionalism. That the Arab region is exceptional in various ways, uh, including demographic. Um, I think by and large, it's demographic transition and changes that have occurred resemble those that have occurred in other regions. Maybe a bit accentuated in some ways. Um, youth bulge and so forth maybe a bit higher than you find elsewhere, but it doesn't seem to me that it's a night and day difference. On the other hand, I think undeniably there are short-term generational imbalances that in various ways must present a challenge um, for, um, for these societies uh, in terms of a social challenge, economic challenge, and even political challenge. And um, what is also absolutely clear is that with the declines in mortality and declines in fertility, no reason to think that will be reversed. What I'm calling a demography of the kin group, um, now and heading into the future, it's going to look very, very different than it did in the past. Numbers of brothers, numbers of cousins, um, coexistence of cross-generations. Uh, Arab society is, uh, is going to... Look, beginning to look and going to look very different than it did in the past. And um, we didn't have much chance to talk about this. I had some further things to say about this. But um, so much of their um, social energy is focused on the kin group. Um, that I, and it's not just social energy. It's also economic uh, strategies. Um, and even political process has so much to do with uh, allegiance and um, interest of kin group that um, the kind of change here, um, I think, must have further repercussions that I certainly haven't worked out, but I think they, they have to be there. So, I'm sorry, we really yeah. are way over. Yeah. Uh, I'm very sorry. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm very much interested uh, in, in the, most of the, and I'm not leaders because people say that maybe it's not the leaders, they're leaders. Uh, uh, <laughs> so, uh, so uh, in the post-independence of post-colonial uh, leadership, 
So there would be a sea change at this when, point. I mean, except Jordan and let's take Yemen and Morocco, many other countries are the most independent rulership. So, to the demographers, do you think that there will be what kind of changes there? I'm sorry, I'm missing your question. You're saying that we're we're about to have a cross of political succession that's going to bring in a new generation. Yeah, well, let's take Mr. Mubarak and Egypt. Saddam Hussein is gone, and so there are some other countries that which are still either the post independence or post colonial. Even if the top name is kingdom, the Amir is Sheikh Zayed, for example, is very old. So that also a new generation will be replacing them. And what sort of changes are they predicting? <laughs> yeah, I think it really that's outside my <laughs> bounds. But you are reminding me of a point I wanted to make. Or not, well, I wasn't going to make because it's sort of a, an aside, but um, you mentioned these I talk about the coexistence of, of generations. Um, and because men are living longer, um, fathers are living longer than sons, um, you now have uh, leaders living into their 70s and 80s, and when they die, their sons are 35 or 40. Uh, you could argue this makes it much easier to pass rulership down through the family. That's one can do kind of a demography of a family analysis of political succession. Um, Syria, it's already passed from father to son. Jordan, it passed from father to son. Looks like it may pass father to son in Egypt. Hosea um, Mubarak to uh, Gamal. So um, you could say that its demographic change has facilitated keeping the reins of power within the same families in this region. Um, so that's the point you remind me of. But, but I don't really know. I don't know others who know the region some ways differently than I do might. Rick or someone might have some. Uh, whether this new generation will be all that much more progressive uh, is what we would call progressive. I don't know. Are you better prepared to lead at 35 or 40 than you are at 20 or 25? Is that part of your point? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's more. Yes, I think it's more plausible that you could become a national leader at age 35 or 40 than you could at 20. Um, I mean, um, Assad's at the death of Assad in Syria, his son was what? About 35 or 40, right? Yeah. And same thing with uh, Hussein and Jordan, I think. And um, these are all men who died at age 70, 75, and they already had grown sons who had been near the reins of power for some time. <coughs> I don't think, by the way, this is a particularly profound point. It's kind of a trivial point in a way. Is he 47 now? Because um, the star, Shah had a lot of trouble having a son. Oh, no, he's old. He's old. He's old. He's old. Yeah, it took, yeah. He's ready. Will he be? <laughs> something quite noted through the region. The West wasn't probably so tuned to it, but whether the Shah was going to manage to have a son um, was, um, okay, we shouldn't get into that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> What's happening with immigration patterns? You talk about how many, uh, there's a huge number of people in uh, Arabs, essentially, in uh, Europe and so forth. All these things seem to be yeah. one thing. You need to help out. That's a really... Um, uh, something I wanted to say at the outset um, is a demographic presentation. Um, I excluded migration here, and that's a fairly important omission for this region. So there's a whole, there's a lot of stories to tell about what migration has to do with with, with the economies and the political systems of these of this region. It's um, I'm not 
Well, if I, if I look around the globe, I'd say this region, as much as any, is impacted by migration patterns. And they're both internal to the region. Um, certainly in the past, in the 70s and 80s, migration to the Gulf and back was a tremendously important phenomenon. Um, um, and, of course, there, and then there's migration to the north, across the Mediterranean, to Europe, and, and to North America as well. It's tremendously important. There's a lot we could say about it. But... Um, well, the possibility of 9-11 is that it's going to yeah, this is going to be um, something to so watch. I don't know what's European, happening at Ohio State, but uh, uh, the Europeans started getting very get, get as antsy about Arab immigration These doors may get closed, but of course, Europe are. How much of the delayed marriage trend you're talking about is linked to this migration pattern? Yeah, Craig, I think some of it will be. Yeah. That's one element, maybe a fairly important one in this overall problem, the men getting themselves established economically. And one of the strategies is to go out of the country. Uh, It used to be to the Gulf, um, and now it's been to Europe, or even North America. That's getting harder to do. Yes, it is. You're right. It's getting harder, and... um, Someone must be thinking about that. That is going to cause even more squeeze. After 1991, the Gulf states stopped taking other Arabs, not completely, but more largely, and decided to bring in South Asians, Malaysians, other Muslim, non Arab Muslims. Yeah, because of Kuwait and Palestine. They were afraid of Arab nationalist appeals that Saddam and Palestinians have made. And so that has been a huge source of employment for Egyptians, for instance, Mm -hmm. and Yemenis. And millions of Egyptians in Iraq. But it is a region, I think, I'm glad you mentioned migration, just to put on the table anyone who sat through all this. Um, I had not said a word about migration, and, and uh, you, know, you can only talk about it so much. But it's a tremendous, if you look at the demography of this region, um, migration is a tremendously important phenomenon. I've been doing this for the past 20, 25 years. Um, one thing that I have discovered uh, in my observations, I've not really sent you research for that, because of life expectancy is changing because of meditation and organization and things that different factors. The early marriages at which I used to see 20, 25 years ago, like 15-year-old girl and 15-year-old, this is not happening in sort of right. Uh, my question is about, uh, there is another group of people in the Middle East, uh, one of our professors, Professor Mayer, from sociology, that uh, Dr. Yusuf, one of your graduates, they did study between Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, a group of people that were Bidunus, not Bidunus, Bidunus, Bidunus are some of the two, have no citizenship. And that's between Algeria and Libya, there are hundreds and millions of people. And it's not a citizen of this country or that country. Mm. Even though they're not nomadic, but uh, somehow in border areas. Like, no one has statistics about them, no one study about them. So uh, and it came to the surface only after the, the first Gulf War. And that uh, one of uh, your students did, and I listened to his talk, and then I went to the Middle East. 
and they told me that, uh, that this is a very common thing that there are some people that work in the field of the statistics. I don't know much about that. But, um, between, between in Arabic means without. I think we've got to quit. Right? <laughs> I think we've got to quit. We're long overdue. Thank you very much. There, there are rec- refreshments that I've <laughs> I'm getting one out there. No, I haven't. <laughs> but the doors went closed, and I think we were being put up. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's just a rational I made a few changes here. Let's see now what I do. You know, the, the, the statistical civil war studies basically don't really support this youth bulge, but they haven't looked at it with the education component you're talking about. And everybody's just done young males as a percent or a ratio. Yeah. Um, well, I really got that from these French demographers. So yeah. Far yeah, but it is. I mean, it is. Did you? I wanted to it ask make you. some kind of super, superficial sense that there's a mismatch going on of, of institutions. And, yeah. Um, well, one of the arguments is that um, it doesn't necessarily is it, it increases the frustration of the young feel towards the older generation. Right. But not only not because because they they say you know I'm better educated than you. I have yeah. skills you don't have. Right. You're standing in my way. Right. Um, that's yeah. the argument. Yeah. And whether it really plays out that way, people's lives, I don't know. What is the yeah. goal to give us that youth dependency ratio denied? Is it um, just a slang term attached to youth dependency ratio? Yeah. It's, although, well, now youth dependency ratio usually is the ratio of the young under age 15 right. to some other group. I think I used under. Oh, is that what you have to do, maybe? I want yeah. to copy this to my. Oh, I don't think this Yeah, it probably it's better if you undo it, maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah. Maybe I'll have to move it off of there. Um, what I was looking at is among the adults, the the young part versus the old part. So it's a little bit different. Excluding, the youth dependency. Excluding youth the, dependency is whether you have excessive numbers of children. Excluding the age, those over 60 or over 50. Yeah, I was just I chose 15 to uh, 60, but I wanted to cut it differently. Now, why can't I seem to just get this, uh, why am I just, oh, here we go. What is the, are you uh, thinking Craig Dinner as a transition from here? Or yeah, we well, we can come chat back for a little bit and then take off to the, yeah. I'm having trouble with this. just want to copy this to the other. Today, I mean, just I just copied it, right? Yeah, there we go. Ooh, got bigger. Uh, <laughs> but Craig, I hope this. I don't know. I feel did like you, this is you must have done some. Yeah, I did some changes. So yeah, I it right. Save it. Well, save it. That's the I, whole point of PowerPoint. I never, may never do. This. Yeah. But that's the whole point of PowerPoint. You know, the the calculus you're making though with regard to education component. That's nobody's ever played with that. 
That's a totally well, different. I went to my office and asked some people. I some people who work on schooling and schooling trends, and I said, "Well, see, people they they separate those. That is, like people like Sam Huntington and the like who talk about this youth bulge problem. Mm -hmm. They they separate the quote quote overeducated or the more highly educated question, the young educated males without jobs, from argument. Although they present it as part of the whole piece, yeah. but no one has ever really indexed it yeah. that way. That I well, seen. I have um, Bellamy. I have. Shut down, right? Yeah. I have um, friends who, who work on um, trends in education. and But they all look, you know, cohort by cohort at the percent um, achieving various levels. And I say, have you ever just looked at the raw numbers? Um, oops. I have that. confused. Yeah. I, um, I asked him, have you ever looked at just the raw numbers? The growth in the numbers of, of people with secondary or university um, or school. And right. the guy I was talking to said, gee, I never did that. Um, <laughs> sort of, you know, we're so... In a way, it's a cruder kind of analysis, but on the other hand, the sheer numbers, um, it's a very start. Um, well, this percentage that he was at, uh, Alam. Yeah, who is he? Alam uh, Payed. Uh, he's the director of the Middle East Studies Center. Oh. And he, he's Afghan by background. He focuses mostly on political and historical uh, issues. But, uh, but Alam's, what Alam's talking about is, like in Kuwait, you know, 80% of the population is yeah. not a citizen. I should know. And then there are different classes of non-citizenship, even, uh, that apparently make a difference. And, you know, I just kind of, I think I'm just going to oh. plug in and hand it to them. Uh, but it's it's sort of like, what is, what is going on with that population? Oh. And one would assume that they're even more impacted by these some of these economic opportunity questions. This is not yours, right? No. I don't know what that is, even. I'm just sitting here. Those golf states are weird places. I wonder if this was part of the click system. Maybe I, could bring I should stash this with the computer, I'm assuming. Because i got to stash this stuff. That's the reason I'm taking this apart. Oh, okay. I want to make sure I stick this in my office so that... Uh, doesn't get stolen. Yeah, I don't know whether they turn the power off in the main system. Yeah, I, I'm assuming they want all this. We can come back. But, anyway. but um, uh, the, the people around them that have dealt with this, the most of these are just the sheer ratio of the male's talk